We left off last week. We got all the way to chapter 2, verse 17, the book of Genesis. And we left off last week discussing this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And, and wondering why would God put a tree in the garden and say, hey guys, do not eat of this tree. You kind of feel like, God, that's a little bit cruel. Like, don't you know the tendency of humanity here? Like, that's just playing with fire in a sense. Why could you do that? Well, God, you see, wanted there to be choice. Without choice, there can't be a genuine loving relationship. God didn't want there just to be a bunch of robots that would be manufactured in the garden with no choice other than just to serve God. There's no relationship in that. And so God gave humanity a choice. He puts a tree there in the garden. He says, of all the trees, you may eat freely, but of this one tree, do not eat of it. And the day you eat of it, you will surely die. God made it very clear that there'd be grave consequences that would come along with eating that tree. This would be no mistake for Adam where Adam could not say after eating of it, I didn't know, God. If only I knew that this would be the result. I mean, God made it clear the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. It can't get any more clear than that. Well, I didn't think you meant, you know, like death, death. I thought you meant something else, you know. I mean, no, it was very clear for Adam. So God puts it out there that there would be real consequences that would come along with this. And we're going to talk about those consequences as we get into chapter 3 here tonight. But first we get to talk more about blessing and look at the blessing of marriage primarily as we end, the, end chapter 2 here. And the message we're looking at here today is looking at from good times to bad times. And that's kind of the story of the Bible where God has intended good, but then sin has come in and marred everything. But the story of the Bible is not from good times to bad times, but it's from good times to bad times to good times in and through Jesus Christ. That's the story of redemption, the story of the Bible. And so that's what we get to see throughout scripture here. But as we pick it up in verse 18, we see here God saying, The Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And and so here in chapter two, we see this institution of marriage being created now. More and more, as we see society break down, we see the view of marriage breaking down. Perhaps the reason society is broken down, as it has, is because the view of marriage is broken down and the family unit has become broken now, I, I joke a lot about marriage, and I joke a lot about my wife, oftentimes wondering if I pushed a joke too far, but let me just say I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful for my wife. I'm thankful for marriage. Uh, our, our secret to a good marriage is to go out on regular nights out. I go out Monday nights. She goes out Thursday nights, but uh, we have regular nights out that are super helpful and good, but I, I'm so thankful um, for my wife. I love her. She's been a blessing to me. Um, and, and much of what we're reading here in Genesis, we just had that helper comparable to him. I just go, thank you, God, for the, 
the helper you've provided me, the blessing that she is. And it's the way that God has intended it. So as we continue on in our text, uh, let's look into this a bit more. So here we see God, verse 18, saying, you know, I'm gonna provide a helper comparable to him. He says in verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and, and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them and whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed so this was the first time that God said of his creation now that it was not good every day after creation he looked around it is good everything in his creation he looked around and said it is good but there at the end of day six after creating man remember as we saw last week created man in his own image so after creating man he's recognizing it's not good that he is alone to which a lot of you women right now are saying amen to that. This is not a good thing whenever man is left alone. That's true. We understand that very clearly. But you see, Adam was given the task of naming all the animals. And so, of course, he made the male and female, all the animals. And so as all these animals are coming in pairs, I believe Adam is, and again, understand that at the beginning of creation, I believe that man was created with great high you know intellect and capability we're not talking about cavemen and evolution where man was just beating sticks or rocks and clubbing women over the head there was high intelligence i believe that has deteriorated as a result of sin in a sense so adam has seen all these these animals coming to him he's naming them and he's recognizing i'm sure very clearly there's you know something going on here i see male and female i see partnership with each of these animals and I'm sure Adam's looking around going, uh, something seems to be missing here in my life, right? There seems to be something that's not kind of matching up with what he's seeing in the rest of, of creation. So seeing there's not a compatible partner for him. So God takes over. God places Adam in a deep sleep, it tells us here. And he performs the first surgery, right? Like I said, Genesis is the book of first. Well, here we have the first surgery. Now, why couldn't God have just grabbed some more dirt and, and make a new person, just as he made Adam. Can you just, well, Adam, let's make you a bride here. Let's take some more dirt. Well, this is gonna provide a picture of these two who were to be one flesh. They were not to be two independent people. They were to be two interdependent people. They were to be a unit coexisting and cooperating together as one. And interestingly, actually, the naming of the woman is one of the most beautiful and romantic passages in Scripture, Sandy Adams says. He says this, Remember the privilege to name was a function of dominion and authority. The fact that Adam was allowed to name the woman tells us God had placed her under Adam's authority, but there's one thing I want you to see. The Hebrew word translated man is ish, and the word translated woman is the same word in the feminine form, isha. Adam had authority over Eve, but instead of asserting it, he treats her as an equal. He gives her his own name. 
So God allows Eve to be birthed, in a sense, out of Adam. Now, why did God take and use a rib to create Eve? Well, it's been said God was telling Adam about this wonderful helper that he was going to make for him and how she was going to be a blessing to him. And Adam said, ah, that sounds great, God, but what is this going to cost me? God said, an arm and a leg. And to which Adam responded, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> truth is, truth is, this is a Hebrew word simply referring to the side. So we don't know specifically that this is actually like God taking a rib, but more so speaking of something that God was going to bring Eve from Adam's side. And this is where the picture is just so beautiful. Because when Christ, who now becomes our last Adam, when Christ entered that deep sleep, the death on the cross, out of his side came a bride as well. As the soldier thrust that spear into the side of Jesus, opening up that side, outflowed blood and water, the, the birthing fluids in a sense. When a child is born, the water breaks and blood flows. Something at Calvary is being birthed, and that was the bride of Christ, the church, you and me. We are the bride. We're the, the, the church, the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, uh, 22 to 33 points us out we're going to reference some of those scriptures later on here but just as Christ gave himself for the church so did Adam give a part of himself for his bride for Eve to be birthed that the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam not made out of his head to rule over him not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side to be equal with him under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved, Matthew Henry tells us. I think that's a fitting picture here. The position, the place that Eve comes where they can walk through life side by side in true partnership, you see. Man is to love his wife and continue to give himself for her. Women are to submit to their husbands. She came from his side and is to be by him. Now, generally speaking, man lost something when that rib came out. When Eve came from his side, all you have to do is look at the differences between men and women. It's quite apparent, isn't it? Women are typically a little bit more sensitive, maybe a little bit more compassionate than men are. There's a more innate passion and desire to be worshipers of God. Man is typically more stable. He doesn't go up and down as much as women do emotionally because they don't have her sensitivity. The point is, is that God has intended to bring these two together to complement and complete one another, to be a help to each other. Now, ultimately, Jesus came as the perfect and complete man, and we can find all we need in him, and we are complete in him. The great line, you complete me, I think is a little bit false, because sometimes we think, well, my partner's not completing me. Ultimately, you have no excuse because you're to find your completion in Christ. But there's to be a complementary uh, work going on between the husband and wife that just adds and strengthens one another, you see. The union between man and woman is one that is blessed of God, that he desires to bless. And so here we see in verse 22 that at the end of verse 22 that God brought her now to the man. He brings Eve to the man. This now is the first wedding that we see. Genesis, the book of first, the first wedding. How wonderful. Some have been so desperate to, to try and find a mate that they're willing to compromise and settle. 
Can I just encourage you if you're single to pray for God to lead the right person to you? I've heard people claim that if they don't take more action, then they'll never get married. Adam didn't have to take any action here. If he did, perhaps he would have come home with a gorilla, as some women kind of do, right? It's like, I just got to find somebody. I'm going to grab somebody. If Adam just was like, I don't have a partner. I just got to grab somebody. I mean, who knows what he would have came home with, but he waited for God to bring the right person to him. And how important that is for us to do. Oh, I'm not saying that you can't ask somebody out, that you can't take some action in a sense where you take steps of faith, but ultimately you trust the Lord to lead you, to confirm that person for you, to let him do the work. And he's gonna bring the right person to you. And ultimately, God doesn't call everyone to marriage. See, focus on him and all these things shall be added to you. Seek him first. Trust the Lord in those things. I remember when I was, um, before I, I um, got together with Michelle, uh, you know, there was somebody that I had just broken up with and um, she was somebody that I'd met over in, in Rhode Island at the college I went to. I was back at home now here in Richmond and she'd come out visit and, and it just, you know, we knew it just wasn't working out long distance so we broke up and I remember, um, you know, like later on uh, that night or, or that week I'm driving to my church and I just started thinking about Michelle. It's somebody that we, I had known Michelle from uh, years prior and hadn't talked to her in like a year and I'm like, gee, I wonder what Michelle's up to because I'm suddenly going, I'm single again. Who's next, right? That's kind of my attitude, seriously. I'm not saying it's good. I'm not promoting it. Just saying that's where I was at. And I'm driving to church tonight and I'm just like, Lord, you know, I'm thinking, and then I just, I honestly just felt God so clearly speaking to me, don't worry about that stuff. Just focus on me and I'll bring that to be. And I was like, Lord, you're right. I'll wait a week before I come. No, I didn't say that. I, I said, Lord, you're right. I'm not gonna worry about that stuff. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna contact Michelle. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna rest in you, God. And I'm having this conversation as I'm driving to church and I just felt such a peace. And as I drove into my church, the first person I see in the parking lot was Michelle. She doesn't go to the church. Hadn't seen her in a year. I'm not saying you know, God's gonna work that quickly in everybody, but it was something that I had to resolve and just give over to the Lord and say, God, it's your call. And I'll give it to you. And when we do, we let the Lord work those things out. And he has a much better way of doing it than, than we do. I wasn't gonna share that story, but I just felt inspired to share that. If that helps anybody, don't expect it to be immediate like that, but at least know that God can work those things out. So, so we see here God bringing Eve now to Adam. It says in verse 24, as I read already, let me read it again. Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now for this union to be blessed, there's gotta be three things here. And I love to bring these up when I counsel um, soon to be, um, you know, uh, couples, soon to be married couples, or people that have been in marriage for a while, these are things that we can oftentimes get away from. But there's three things that stand out in this, and there's three words here, leaving, cleaving, and weaving. Maybe you've heard of them before, but write them down if you're taking notes. If you're not taking notes, why not? But it says there, leaving, cleaving, and a weaving. There must first be a leaving, because what does God say? Uh, he says there in verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. In other words, you're to be separating now from 
all other former priorities in life. And your wife now, this is to form the new priority. You see, a lot of people haven't taken that kind of step where they say, I'm gonna step away from, and they, father and mother was like the highest of relational category that you had in that day. That was a serious kind of relationship. That was certainly the one that you paid the most you know, priority to. But now God says, you're to leave, father and mother. Not, not forsake them, but you're to step away from that being kind of the head and the priority of your relationships. And now your spouse is to be your new priority, the new focus that takes precedence over all. So there's to be a leaving of the father and mother. And then God says to Adam, and then you'll be joined to his wife. That's that cleaving idea. Cleaving or, or more rightly translated to, to cling, to join to your spouse. And listen, that's a strong word that's being used here because it implies a joining together never to separate like this gluing. You, you know, when you take plywood, Plywood is, is manufactured form by taking various sheets of plywood, you glue them together, right? And you press them down together. That's kind of the idea here is that you're sort of forming a new bond together with your spouse. That's never to be broken. In fact, if you were to try to take away, let's say you buy some plywood and you go, that's a little bit too thick for me. I'm gonna take away a few. Try taking away those layers. What's gonna happen? You're not gonna be able to. It's just gonna break, shatter. It's gonna crumble. It's gonna be ruined. And that's the idea within relationship. When you are joined together, you are creating a bond that is not to be separated. In fact, when it is separated, it's not a smooth separation. It's damaging. It's hurting. And lastly, there's to be a weaving. It says, you're to be joined to your wife and they shall become one flesh one flesh, the weaving together. That happens in the confines of sexual intimacy, which is a wonderful bonding thing that happens, but it's meant to be in the confines of marriage only. When it's practiced outside of marriage and with multiple people, you're not gonna be able to become the one flesh God intended because what's happening is what is so prevalent in society today. Oh, I can just seep around, it's no big deal. But what's happening is that you're, you're weaving yourself together. You're creating a one flesh bond so that now when you separate again, well, you're not just, see what happens is that people feel, oh, I can just move on. I can just separate, leave, and go my way. But you're, again, tearing apart a part of yourself and you're just taking away a fraction of you because you formed a one flesh bond with that other partner now to where there's this kind of intimacy that when there's a breaking away, you're, you're taking a fraction of you. And then you go and do that with another person and then another person. This is why we're seeing a lot of people that are not experiencing wholeness because they've been emptying themselves, leaving themselves scattered abroad. It's like taking a piece of tape and you put that tape on the wall, you take it off and you try to stick it somewhere else and you stick it again somewhere else, soon that tape just can't stick any longer. And what do you see happening with the relationships? People just not able to stick any longer. See, God intends us to be reserved for marriage, 
and to be a lifelong commitment. And when that happens, you see, you are going to experience a dynamic in your relationship that God intended to be a, a wonderful, beautiful bond that is lifelong to where there can just be blessing and, and wholeness in the relationship. This one flesh is a serious thing that God has provided for a monogamous, permanent relationship. And the blessings you experience through it are going to be immense. Now, it's sad to see how quick people are to give up and leave the marriage relationship. People allow themselves to be controlled, you know, by their feelings and emotions. People will say, well, I just don't have feelings for them any longer. Or, you know, I fell out of love. You've heard that before, right? You know, oh, we just fell out of love. And that is so dumb. It's so ridiculous. Because God says, be joined, cling to each other. Some will say, well, I'd cling more if I had feelings. But that's backward thinking. Start clinging, and guess what's going to happen? The emotions, the feelings are gonna come along with it. Give yourself wholly to the relationship and union. Honor God in it and through it and you will find greater joy and contentment in your marriage because marriage is to be a covenant agreement that you're making, not to be broken. It's a commitment. It's a, it's a decision to love your spouse. It's not based on emotions and feelings. It's a decision, a commitment you make within the confines of this marital covenant. That's a serious thing. And if you're based on emo emotions, they're gonna be up and down all over the place. You don't fall out of love. You, you, you choose to not love your spouse any longer. But as you choose not to, you can choose to say, I'm gonna commit myself. I'm gonna love this person. I'm gonna do so unconditionally, sacrificially. And as you do those things and you take those steps, man, you're gonna find that those emotions begin to grow and that, that love truly as a, as a heartfelt experience begins to overflow in you. Now Ephesians 5 does a great job of, of building off of these things here that we're seeing here in Genesis. Paul alludes to this verse here in verse 24 when he, he mentions in Ephesians 5, verse 31 to 33, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He says, this is a great mystery but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul uses this passage to tie in the connection of the husband and the wife, the husband-wife relationship with that of the church in Christ. See, we're living for a bigger picture than just ourselves as we live out this marital relationship. This is no longer just about, let me demonstrate how I can love my wife. It becomes, let me demonstrate how Christ loves the church. Let me be a picture of what we have as the bride of Christ in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, there's still a, a couple of key components every couple needs to see carried out for a healthy marriage that Paul brings up here. Because he says at the end of, of Ephesians 5 and verse 33, what does he say? Nevertheless, right? Um, let each of one of you particularly still love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the call there is for husbands, love your wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Now, some of you might be thinking, but I can't love my wife because she doesn't respect me. And some of you ladies are saying, I don't respect my husband because he doesn't love me, doesn't pay any attention to me, right? And, and, and we go back and forth on these things. But listen, my friends, Paul doesn't say, 
Husbands, love your wives if she respects you. Nor does he say, wives, respect your husbands if he is kind and caring and loving towards you. No, and, and so often we get caught up in what we see our spouse is not doing, right? I think every marriage has experienced that. If you would just do this a little bit more, it would make it so much easier for me to, and we tend to kind of put the onus or the blame on what our spouse isn't doing. We can tend to kind of point out all the faults that our spouses are doing and fail to look at ourselves when all that we're called to do is say, we just need to simply uphold our responsibility. My job is not to dictate how much my wife is respecting me. My job is to love my wife and to love my wife as Christ loved the church. That means unconditionally, sacrificially, to the point of death. Not comfortable, but that's what I'm called to do. Husbands, you're called to do that. Wives, you're not called to point out how much your husband is not being affectionate and loving. Your job is to respect your husband. And when we begin to function in our role and responsibility and seek simply to carry out our role, what we begin to see is our spouses taking note going, wow, look at how loving they've been. Look at how, how respectful they are. Man, that's somebody that I want to love in return. That's somebody I want to I respect in return. Suddenly, our spouses begin to have a different attitude in the relationship as we simply model what we're called to do. Our jobs are not to fight over who's not doing what. Our job is simply to uphold what we're called to do, to follow scripturally what husbands and wives are instructed to do. And when you do these things, you're gonna be providing the atmosphere that's needed to ensure a healthy, happy relationship. One where verse 25 of Genesis 3 can just flourish and just be like abounding, such a glorious thing. All of you are reading verse 25 right now going, what is he talking? Oh, okay, that's what he's talking about. Yes, there's a, there's a blessing that comes out of it. Now, verse 25 was a sign of being totally open before the Lord. See, sin had not entered in and there was nothing to hide. That was the blessed freedom God has planned all along. Sin has marred all that, but that's not the end because there's restoration in Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 8, verse 20 and 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty and freedom of the children of God. The same kind of freedom that, that Adam and Eve experienced there in the garden. Not saying that we're gonna be walking around naked in eternity. We're gonna be clothed, but there'll be a freedom that we enjoy, all right? That God has restored through the work of Jesus Christ. So Genesis chapter three, let's move into there. Genesis three brings us one of the three great third chapters of the Bible. The others being John three and Romans three. All Three of these third chapters speak of the three R's, ruin, redemption, and regeneration. We see that here in Genesis chapter three. So, it says there in verse one, now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? 
Now, let me stop right there. So, we all know the story well. We've read this. We've seen this. Um, but there's some questions, I think, that we can ask and, and look at a little bit more. It's interesting that we see a serpent that comes onto the scene who is more cunning than any beast of the field. Now, though it's not specifically laid out for us in this chapter, we know the serpent is speaking of Satan. Not mentioned here exactly in that way, but, but where did Satan come from? How did he get in the garden? Well, there's some passages of scripture that kind of give us a little bit more history and a bit of a, um, a look at Satan and who he was. Look at Isaiah 14, verse 13 and 16. It says this. For you said in your heart, speaking of Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? So Satan was once an angel, an angel, a high-ranking angel, one that, as we see here, began to be filled with pride and desired to be worshipped like God. And he was then cast down. Ezekiel, another passage that references Satan. Ezekiel 28, verse 14 to 17 says, You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. So these verses here, I mean, they show and reveal Satan where he came from. He was once walking freely there uh, on the mountain of God with God. He was filled with sin and pride. He was cast down. But it speaks about this splendor, this beauty that he had, right? And so here we see Satan coming before Eve. Perhaps he, he perhaps possesses a snake and he comes in that form. And you might think, well, that seems weird. Why? Uh, we know that God spoke through Balaam's donkey. Perhaps Satan's using the snake to speak through, we don't know. But I, I believe more so that this is not just an ordinary snake. Some believe that uh, the, the original Hebrew word here could have been used to speak of something far greater, uh, bigger perhaps. Um, it could be that uh, Satan came as some kind of beautiful, kind of awe-inspiring creature, you know. Uh, sometimes we think, Often that when Satan comes, we're going to recognize him because he's just going to be coming with this, you know, horns and pitchfork and just this persona of evil. We're going to be like, we're like, no, but we know and understand that Satan doesn't always come that way. Satan can oftentimes come in a way that can very much be alluring and look like a thing of, of beauty. And perhaps it came that way to Eve to where Eve is not worried He's not questioning, oh my goodness, get thee behind me, Satan. She's just like, you just have this conversation with him as though he's no threat. Nothing to fear, you see. So Satan can oftentimes come and, and, and appear very attractive and as to make sin very attractive. 
Some have suggested that he appeared even as a dragon and that he could have flown through the air. We read much about dragons in literature and in the Bible. Where did that concept come from? Right here, I mean, Revelation 12, 9 says, so the great dragon was cast out that serpent of old referencing Genesis 3, 1, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14 and 15, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if, he, if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to the work. So Satan can come and appear as something that is not the persona of evil, nothing that looks perhaps threatening at first, but very attractive and alluring. And I believe it's that way with Eve here. Having pointed out who the serpent is, let's look at a bit more of his tactics because what does Satan do here? Well, he causes Eve, first of all, to kind of question and doubt God's word, right? What does Satan say? He says, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Right there at the end of verse one. Did God really say that? Come on. Does God really mean that? See, in questioning God's word, Satan uses the same tactic he uses today. Satan wants nothing more than to make you think that the word of God is not dependable, reliable, and trustworthy. And he'll bring you in a place where the word might seem contradictory or perhaps that the word is kind of keeping you from something better. If you can get people to question God's word, then it produces that doubt and denial in the mind of people. It takes away from the very character of God that he is the God of truth. Listen, we can be assured that the word of God says what it means and means what it says, that every word is God-breathed, inspired, it's reliable, it's inerrant, and it's something that can be trusted. Don't ever let Satan come in and try to twist things around and make you doubt or question God's word because it's proven itself over and over again. The first armor mentioned in Ephesians 6 when it talks about the armor of God is what? It's the belt of truth. How we need to be clothed in that belt of truth, and it's the belt of truth that kind of holds every other bit of armor together and in place. The belt of truth is so important, how we need to stand on the truth. Let's be ready to, to do battle with the enemy because he's crafty and he's looking for those openings to where he can get in and begin to throw those fiery darts at us, make us question God's word. So he starts out with Eve and then the woman said to him in verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now, first and foremost, when Satan comes tempting you, don't get in a dialogue with him. Don't engage in him. The Bible says in James 4, verse 7, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Don't have any conversation with the devil. Just say, get away from me. I have nothing to do with you. Move on. Resist him. Don't engage him. But Eve begins to have a dialogue with him. Starts to converse with him. Notice what else Eve did. She added to the word of God. She said, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. That's not what God said. God said, of all the trees in the garden you may Eat of it freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat it. 
and the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. He didn't say anything about touching it. But Eve adds that. How did Eve get that in her mind? Is it possible that Adam did a poor job in relaying the word of God to his wife? Eve wasn't there when the instructions were given. That was given to Adam. Is it possible that Adam didn't do a good job? See, Paul, again, in, in Ephesians, going back to Ephesians 5, verse 26, relays the work of Christ in sanctifying the church through the washing of water by the word. And Paul is showing that this is the work of the husbands with their wives. How we need to sanctify our wives by the giving out of the word of God. Taking away from the word and adding to the word is a very serious thing. The Jews in Jesus' day, I mean, what did they do? They made a business of adding to the word of God and all it did was bring people into greater burden. How we need to be sure that we're passing on the word of God to others? Especially in our, in our home relationships and, and seeing that cleansing, sanctifying work taking place but being sure that we're standing upon the truth of God's word, not adding to it, not taking away from it. So the statement from Eve was the opening for Satan to challenge this word. And he says, oh, you shall not surely die. Go ahead, touch it. See, nothing. It gave that opening for Satan to challenge that. And to come in and say, oh, you will not surely die. Well, verses one to four reveal the craftiness of Satan. Let's look at the character now of temptation, verses five to six here. We read there, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So Satan, in a, in a roundabout way, is suggesting that God is wanting to keep Adam and Eve from the fullness of life that they might otherwise enjoy. Basically, I think what Satan is trying to get at is that you know, God's robbing you of really experiencing fun and joy and blessing in life. Is that the way that Satan loves to operate today in us and to us? Satan comes along saying, oh, just do it. It won't hurt anyone. God just wants to keep you from really enjoying life. Just do it. It's going to be so satisfying. Is that what Satan loves to do? Sadly, people get caught up in the lure and the enticement of sin, failing to see that there are real consequences to our actions. People fail to see that God is actually seeking to protect us and, and, and keep us from harm and pain. He puts parameters around us not to be a killjoy, but to say, when you follow these things, this is the way that you're going to truly enjoy life and be fulfilled and experience the blessings of God rather than the pain of sin. So we see this progression of temptation here now that propelled Eve to sin. We read there that the tree was good for food. And again, that the woman saw these things, that the tree was good for food. Verse six, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise. This progression is still how the enemy loves to operate today. It's still kind of the force of the world today. Look at what we read in 1 John 2, 15 and 17 and notice the, the parallels. Do not love the world or the things in the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, notice the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. See, the enemy makes sin look enticing, enjoyable, and enriching. Satan tempted Jesus in much the same way when he brings him into the wilderness. What do you say? Hey, Jesus, why don't you get these, turn these stones into bread? Right? Satisfy the flesh. Or why don't you throw yourself off the, this pinnacle of the temple? That'd be a real sight to see, right? That would be incredible, great display of power. Satan thirdly says, Jesus, if you just bow down and, and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world, right? The pride of life. And Jesus combated each of those temptations, how? By quoting scripture. Eve succumbed to sin through misquoting scripture. How we need to be sure that we're holding on to the word of God accurately, truly. And, and so just as 1 John reveals to us here now the, the lust of the flesh, Eve was seen that the tree was good for food. 1 John reveals the lust of the eyes. She saw that this fruit was pleasant to the eyes. Just as John, 1 John reveals the pride of life at, at work in the world, she saw this tree was desirable to make, um, desirable to make one wise. Be filled with pride. Same path and progression of temptation that Satan operates in today, how we need to protect and guard ourselves from these things. Now, what makes this even more painful is that Adam seems to be very complicit in all of this, right? Now, we're not sure if he's even privy to Satan's plotting, but he should have known enough not to partake. And in so doing, sin has entered into the human race. Uh, McDonald said this, in the words she took of its fruit and ate, lie the explanation of all the sickness, sorrow, suffering, fear, guilt, and death that have plagued the human race ever since that time. Someone has said the wreckage of earth and a million billion graves attest that God is true and Satan is the liar. Eve was deceived, but Adam acted willfully and in deliberate rebellion against God. And as a result, sin has come into the human race. Well, Look at verse seven here. We see the consequences of sin now. It's been said that eating forbidden fruit gets you into many jams. It's very true. Contrary to popular belief, it wasn't the apple on the tree that God has banished from paradise. It was the pear on the ground. Very true. Verse seven. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Satan has said, or had said, that in the day they eat of this fruit, their eyes would be open and they'd be like God. Now he was right in the fact that their eyes would be open. He was wrong in saying that they would be like God. But their eyes would be open to the reality of their sin and shame. This is something that God desired to protect them from. This wasn't going to make them like God, but rather let them share in the view that God had of evil. Something he wanted to free them from. 
they were already made in the image of God. They already had a blessed union with God. They didn't need to become like God to add to their life. They just needed to walk in union and, and in obedience to God. But in that desire for these things, now they're seeing a taking away of life. They're, they're seeing a robbing of the freedom that they had once enjoyed. Now they're seeing things not through innocent eyes, but through opened eyes. And they're seeing the consequences of sin. Thomas said this, the root of sin should be understood. The foundation of all sin lies in man's desire of self-assertion and his determination to be independent of God. Adam and Eve chafed under the restriction laid upon them by the command of God and it was in opposition to this that they asserted themselves and thereby fell. Man does not like to be dependent upon another and subject to commands upon another and subject to commands from without. He desires to go his own way, to be his own master, and as a consequence, he sins and becomes Lord of himself, that heritage of woe. That's now what Adam and Eve are experiencing, this heritage of woe. They're not going, whoa, you're naked. They're going, whoa, what are we experiencing now? Because we once enjoyed this great freedom. And now suddenly we're seeing things from a different level, a different perspective that they, I'm sure, were wishing wasn't the case. See, and having their eyes open, they now knew the shame that sin brings. The evil that is, has come into the world. What was once enjoyed in freedom was now exposed and feared. And what's their first reaction to all of this? Let's cover it up. Let's cover it up. That's so often what we try to do, isn't it? We try and hide our sin or cover it up. We, we attempt to do the work instead of running to God. That's what religion does. Religion tries to cover things up through your own works and righteousness. Let me try to make amends. Let me try to do the work just to appease God and cover these things up here now. But yet Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And it says, we all fade as a leaf. All our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I think that's interesting here because these guys now take a fig leaf to try to cover themselves. Interestingly, fig leaves were kind of known to be prickly, maybe a little bit itchy. Not the kinds of things that you want to be putting around your, you know, well, more vulnerable spots right you don't want anything prickly around there but that's exactly what they did I think that's a great depiction of what religion is like because religion cannot help but it only makes you more uncomfortable and irritated religion tries to cover your own tracks but it can't do it it just leaves you more uncomfortable and irritated Adam and Eve sinned and their conscience saw that what was now inappropriate Sadly, we see people today that are not feeling shame over their sins because they have seared their conscience. They're no longer ashamed of what was once shameful. They've allowed their conscience to be seared and just to run headlong into sin. Well, as Adam and Eve try to cover themselves, they're still not experiencing any kind of peace, right? Their, their guilt cannot be erased by their covering. Notice what we read there in, in verse eight. It says this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the gardens. 
Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Interesting, they cover themselves, but what do they continue to do? Hide themselves. They're not experiencing any peace from a fig leaf. They're not experiencing any peace from their own kind of self-righteousness and what they're trying to do. There's no peace in that. They're hiding from God. Now, it's amazing that in this day, Adam and Eve had been enjoying such incredible communion with God that he would just walk with them in the garden. And, and we see this amazing picture. God is walking in the garden. He's calling out to Adam. We would assume that God would be calling out Adam, right? Adam, you idiot, what have you done? This isn't what we see God doing. He's not calling out Adam. He's calling to Adam graciously, compassionately, I believe. Now, that might seem odd to you, wondering, why is God calling Adam? Didn't God know where Adam was? I mean, was God, like, did he lose Adam? Was Adam so good at hide and seek that God couldn't find him? Adam, where are you? No, this is God, not losing Adam, not Adam hiding so well. This is God desiring to draw Adam out and draw out more so confession from Adam. Desiring to bring Adam to point of confession. See, when we sin in our relationship with God, we're not, you know, at a point where suddenly we need to be forgiven again. We've already been forgiven in and through Jesus Christ, but when we sin, our, our relationship with God is hurt. Just like if your kids were to do something disobediently, you don't reject them as your children, but you know, man, this has affected our relationship and amends need to be made. There needs to be, you know, an apology. There needs to be something where there's an admittance of, I did something wrong. I disobeyed, I'm, I'm sorry. And that relationship can be restored. That's, that's what we do when we come to God, when we sin today, we confess so that our relationship can be restored and not impacted by this any longer. 1 John 1.9 says, oh, I don't have that in here. 1 John 1.9, of course, those of you that have taken the 2.7 series, I hope you know this by, by heart here, but it says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we confess, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Uh, what happens is that our relationship becomes restored again. God desires us to confess our sin, to come to him. Don't let sin drive you away from God as it often does. Let sin be that thing that drives you to God. And hopefully it's not sin that has to drive you to God, it's just our own hearts of worship that drive us to God. But when we do sin, don't let it keep you from God. Man, understand the heart of our Father at saying, I want you to come and make amends. I want, I want our relationship not to be impacted by this any longer. I want our relationship to be restored. So come and, and confess. Let's, let's make this right. That's what confession does. Reading on in verse 10, it says, so he said, Adam says, I, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Again, God knew all this. 
God's not looking for information. He's looking for confession. God isn't coming with a paddle to punish Adam, but with compassion to reconcile. That's the same heart that we saw in Jesus after the resurrection when Peter had denied Jesus. It tells us that Jesus went and sought out Peter. I believe simply to restore him, to forgive, to show, I I forgive you, Peter. Don't let this keep you from me. I wanna be in relationship with you. Now, Adam and Eve have a a bit to learn about just owning their sin, right? I'm sure we can all relate to passing the buck and putting the blame on others for our actions. And it all started right here in the Garden of Eden. Look at what we read there in verse 12. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? Oh, but the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What are these two doing? Nobody's saying, Lord, I did wrong. I sinned. They're all going, no, it's this person's fault. And what makes this crazy even with Adam is he's not just blaming Eve, his wife. He's indirectly blaming God. The woman that you gave me, God. If you didn't give me this woman, it wouldn't be a problem. It's all your fault. Can you believe Adam doing that? It's exactly what's happening. Neither of the two are willing to accept responsibility. See, we've got nothing to be afraid of. It's through confession and owning our sin that God is able to release us of our guilt and shame. Like I said, we're already forgiven through Jesus, but confession simply releases sin's grip on you. And how we need to be willing to just simply own our sin. Don't be afraid that God's not gonna forgive you. God's already done it. God just wants you to own it so that he can release that from you and and just bring restoration to the relationship. But Adam and Eve, they're looking to blame. They're looking to pass the buck here. And as I said, Adam is indirectly blaming God. Have you ever done that? I think we'd love to answer no to that, but I think at times we've all been guilty of that. Maybe you've been a person that said, how somebody's maybe pushed you too far and you lose it. You put the blame on them. Well, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have gotten so angry. It was their fault. They just pushed me too far. Indirectly, you may be blaming God because he could have put that person there simply to be that character builder for you, simply to be that that help for you to see the stuff that you need to surrender to. And give over to God. See, we never have an occasion to sin and be justified in it. We never have an excuse to say, well, if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't have done it. Every temptation we face, God gives a way of an escape for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 makes that very clear. We just need to move toward that open door rather than move toward that sin. But with the temptation... God provides that way of escape. And you may be able to bear it. Take that way of escape. Look for that open door. Don't keep entertaining temptation and moving towards sin. Move towards that way of escape. So check this out here, verse 14. How are we, how are we doing here? Okay. Oh boy, 8.15. All right. Um, yeah, let's, can, can we just try to finish up chapter 3? Y'all good? 
Yeah, you're with me? All right. I love asking that because I know nobody's going to say, no, just wrap it up right there. I know nobody's going to say that most likely. But if there's an honest person, then I would love to hear it, but that's fine. Again, y'all good? Now that you feel maybe a little bit more, okay, good. Mm. Verse 14, we get into some really good stuff here, but we'll go through it. Um, We won't be long here, but verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God now begins to really reveal the consequences of sin and more so the curses that are, are gonna be a result of, of the sin. So he pronounces a curse, first of all, upon Satan. This curse to begin with may be more directed toward you know, just reptilian creatures in general as a reminder of Satan's deception as he talks about how snakes are gonna be forced to slither on their belly and eat prey from the dust of the ground. It seems kind of just more a picture of, of Satan's defeat, right? Um, but then we move on to the curse of Satan specifically, and this is known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. It's right here in Genesis 3, the first mention of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Right here in Genesis 3. Notice this here. Because God says, there will be enmity between you and the woman, verse 15, and between your seed and her seed. And if you got the New King James Version, I don't know what translation you have, but in my version, the New King James Version, that word for her seed is capitalized. Paul makes mention of that in in Galatians as he talks about her seed meaning Christ. Interesting. Interesting. So, see, women are not the bearers of seed and reproduction. This becomes a clear reference to the virgin birth of Jesus that God would do through the woman to come, Mary. This promised seed being miraculously implanted in the womb would eliminate any sin nature being passed on and now allow Jesus to be the only qualified savior of humanity. God says that Satan will bruise his heel which would come at the cross. And I'm sure Satan was watching all that unfold thinking, ah, finally I've got him. This is my victory. <laughs> right? You know, Satan's kind of, I'm sure that's probably how he laughs, but I'm sure Satan's looking at all this going, this is it. Defeat him. It's done. It's... But yet we recognize that the work that was being accomplished was ultimately the greatest victory for the Lord in Jesus defeating sin, hell, and Satan. See, what so often can seem like a defeat to us in our lives, where we might see something happen and go, that's it, that's the end, it's over. Understand, like, just as it was on the cross, when many people were watching, thinking, man, that's it. It's a good ride while it lasted, but that seems like that's, that's kind of wrapping it all up now, what's... What more do we have? I guess there's no hope. And yet it's in those very things that can seem like the end of the chapter that God turns around and says, this is just the beginning of a new work here that I'm gonna do where I'm gonna reveal and show the ultimate victory I'm gonna bring about through that. Listen, my friends, let that be a reminder for us that it's never too late to give up. We never have to look at our circumstances around us and say, oh, I guess that's it because with God, there's always hope. 
There's always a new day. The resurrection was going to come and reveal the new day, new life that we have in Christ. Never give up. Never look at what you're seeing before you and think, oh, that's over. Because with God, man, we always have hope. And God was through that seemingly victory for Satan and, and seeming, you know, end of the road for all the followers of Christ, God was going to do something great and provide the ultimate victory. And, and Satan simply just bruised his seal, but where it says that he will bruise your head, that word for bruise is more so referring to crush. Like this was going to be the death blow. He was going to crush your head. This would be it, Satan. You would have no more room to do your thing. There's coming a day when Satan is going to be put into the lake of fire. And it's going to be over for him. He's on borrowed time, and he knows it. Jesus is going to come and provide the ultimate death blow and bring an end to the work of Satan. And that's all revealed right here in one verse in Genesis chapter 3. That's pretty amazing. I think God's word's so good. Now, we come to the woman, verse 16, and God says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So first of all, the fall is going to result in increased pain in childbirth. Ladies, those nightmare experiences of being in labor for 24 hours and pushing out something so big out of so small didn't have to be that way, all right? That was all a result here of Genesis 3. Started with the woman, just so you know, but it's, we won't go there. But um, wouldn't that have been nice to just give birth without difficulty, right? Wouldn't that have been amazing? I mean, the way God intended it, just because this is something that you don't see really in the same degree in the animal kingdom, right? I mean, there's out like just walking around and all of a sudden, oh, there he goes, there he goes, all right, another baby there. I mean, that's how it was supposed to be, I think, for the woman, just walk along, just, oh, I'm gonna take a break, got a baby coming out, you know. And just, that's it. Like, that's how it's supposed to be. And yet, sin has marred all of that. Secondly, now, the woman's desire, it says, will be for her husband. That sounds kind of nice, right? I'm down with that. But the idea here is not that she's going to just have a desire for you. What's, and how this is more rightly broken down is that her desire will be to rule over you right? I mean, this is where women's live, just jumps all over this verse and go, that's what I, that's where I can get behind the Bible, right there. But this was, a, again, a result of the fall. This would be a consequence from sin. This was never the way God intended it, but sin has come and twisted this relationship around. David Guzik says this, the same word for desire is used in Genesis 4, 7, of the desire of sin to master over Cain. Because of the curse, Eve would have to fight a desire to master her husband, a desire that works against God's ordained order for the home. Women, let me just say, wives, resist the temptation to rule your husband. You're called to follow God's word, to submit, but the submission is to be a breeze when the man carries out their mission of loving their wives as Christ loved the church. In other words, that you are dying to self, laying your life down for your wife. When you do that, her desire is not to rule over you. Her desire is going to be to come alongside you and say, man, you're a good husband. But resist that temptation because that's a temptation that comes as a result of 
sin, a result of the fall. It's a, it's a curse that we inherit as a result of what happened here in Genesis 3. And then to Adam, he said in verse 17, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, you have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So let me just be clear here. Work is not the curse. We like to think it is, but we were made to work. There's great joy and satisfaction in work. Sin simply caused work to be a little bit more strenuous and laborious than it would have otherwise been. And there would be a visible sign now of the curse. All around us, we see it today where thorns and thistles are growing. All across my property, there's a reminder of sin. Not just within my kids, but just of the vegetation and the thorns that are growing up there. But it's a reminder of sin's effects, right? Sin doesn't make anything better, right? I mean, we see that very clearly. And then God also reminded Adam of the physical death that sin brought. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, but even so in Christ all shall be made alive. See, we like to look at this and go, man, I don't like this idea that one man brought sin into the world. That doesn't seem fair. But again, it's because God allowed sin to come to the world through one man that he could allow the justification from sin to come through one man, through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and he paid the penalty for our sin once for all. He paid it for all of humanity to those that would put their trust in him and receive him as their Lord and Savior, who would simply admit their sin, believe in him, and receive him as their Savior. One man by one man sin came in the world, but so too, by one man, forgiveness of sin. Justification from sin is brought to the whole world, and so I'm thankful for that. Verse 20, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. So Adam is, I think, kind of catching on to what God is saying here now, because though he's laying down a curse and the repercussions of sin, God was presenting the gospel. So what does Adam do now? He calls his wife Eve. Eve, or translated giver of life. I think Adam is understanding that through this woman would come one who would provide life. That would ultimately be in Jesus Christ. Lastly, verse 21, we've seen the, um, we've seen the craftiness of Satan. We've seen the character of temptation, the consequences of sin. Let's look at now the covering of God. Verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and also take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim to the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned away or turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So God made tunics of skin. Where did God get the tunics of skin? From animals. Sacrifice. The first sacrifice made in the Bible. It's a covering for sin, you see. 
That's exactly what those sacrifices were all going to be, which would ultimately point to and lead to the final sacrifice, Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hebrews 9.22 says that according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without shedding of blood, there's no remission. You look at all these sacrifices throughout the Old Testament, you wonder, oh, that seems so cruel. Why do all those animals have to suffer? But again, that just simply revealed the, the damage of sin, the, the heaviness of sin. Sin takes life. But it's through the blood that sin can be atoned for. And those animals were simply covering sin. But Jesus would not just cover sin, but take away our sin and cleanse us fully and completely. So here Adam and Eve had been in their fig leaves, uncomfortable, irritated. God says, I'm going to clothe you with a covering that is going to cover you. And it's always through his his method, his way of covering and forgiveness that we're going to be able to just walk in that relationship and in that joy and that peace with God. So then we talk about these, these cherub now that are, are, are covering the way. He drove out the man, verse 24, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden. And again, the cherubim are, of course, a reminder of what would sit upon the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It was there that God would meet with the high priest. Though we often think of this final scene as that of judgment, right? It's a wonderful picture of mercy, rather. For the cherubim represent a meeting place with God, where God would still commune with Adam and Eve. This is not just judgment. This is not Adam and Eve being driven out here. This is a place that God will continue to meet with them. Though we break fellowship often through sin, God's forgiveness is available to us through Jesus' covering. We still meet with our Heavenly Father and enjoy those sweet times of communion with Him. And God was simply protecting Adam and Eve here now from the tree of life, protecting them so that here they are now. Sin has entered in, death has come in, and it would come about through a slow process physically. But God says, I'm not gonna let you suffer in that. If you take the tree of life, you're gonna, man, imagine that. They're gonna be like walking around like, like zombies today. So God said, I'm gonna protect you from that. I'm gonna keep you from the tree of life. And so here God's heart is being poured out here, not in judgment, but in grace and in care and compassion. And still again, the picture of the cherubim just providing that meeting place with God. Well, we'll end it there. Chapter four, uh, we'll get into in a couple weeks as we look at again, just kind of some more fallout from sin, sadly. All right, well, let's pray. Lord, we come before you here tonight, and we do thank you, God, for um, all these things that we can look at here, Lord. I thank you for um, marriage. I pray for our marriages in our fellowship here, Lord, those represented right here. I pray that you bless husbands and wives. Lord, I pray that you would call each husband and wife to simply see their role, their responsibility, and to fulfill it, Lord, sacrificially unconditionally, not worried about what their spouse is doing or not doing, Lord. Help them just to live out what you've called them to do and to do so in your strength and in your help. And bless marriages. Bless those that are single, Lord. I pray that they would not be um, seeking a, a, a spouse at their, at their own accord, but would just be trusting you, God, to do your work and in your timing, Lord. And let them just find that completion and rest in you. And Lord, 
God, we pray forgiveness for sin, Lord. We confess that we're, we're sinful people, Lord. We don't blame it all on Adam, though we're not happy that they sinned, but Lord, we know that we take responsibility for that, and we pray that we would just come and confess that sin to you, Lord, and we thank you that you're ready to, to cleanse us, forgive us, and restore relationship with you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be wise to the enemy's tactics, to temptation, and that we wouldn't succumb or fall to those temptations, but that we'd walk, Lord, in your strength and in your victory, Lord, that we'd be clothed in the armor of God, standing strong for you, Lord, and continuing on just living and enjoying this great relationship and fellowship with you, God. We're so blessed, and we thank you, and we praise you here tonight. And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.